when I mute my mic, does it sound like I'm muting my mic? Because when you guys mute your mics, it sounds like you're muting your mics. Hi, Robin. Hi there. Hi, Rob. Oh, hey. Welcome to the blue team. Something's technical. I'm in the mood to uh, record a podcast. Before we jump into follow-up, there's one topic that's still talking about a podcast on a podcast, and me and Robin touched on this today after work. Robin and I. Thank you, Rob. Introductions and how we start the show. Before we conversate on this, I just wanted to make my points, and that's how we start the show is has been different the first two times we've done this, and I just did a third way. So, any opinions on that? Yeah. Uh, well, I have a, a, a comment that I'm curious to get your feedback on, and that's that um, oftentimes, I think, especially with the talk show, but I think also perhaps with ATP, it seems like they have just uh, chosen a point where to start the show. You know what I mean? It, I, I sometimes get the feeling like... Uh, someone's almost uh, ta- starts talking uh, mid-thought right at the beginning of the show. Has anyone else had that impression? I, I also have that impression too. And when I edited the first podcast, I kind of did that for the first one. It was you, Robin, talking mid-sentence, and it just started that way. And I kind of like that as well. I, I'm, I'm open for whatever introductions we want. Yeah, I definitely like that. I, I'm not saying it's uh, right for the show, but uh, when I notice it, I like it. Definitely. I'm entirely indifferent. I, I think we can wing it and see what feels natural. I, I'm hearing that as Rob is not satisfied that we've come to the right conclusion about how to start the show and that we'll need to talk about it much, much more. That is pretty much the opposite conclusion. Well, then I guess, uh, I guess we'll just keep winging it. Um, whoever is hosting this week, they can do their own thing. And, but I, I, I'm with Rob, and I like the just mid-sentence starting the show, and uh, that would be my vote. All right, follow-up. Hydra? Robin? Yeah. So there's tons of things to talk about with Hydra. I'm going to try and focus on one thing that I think would be particularly interesting. Um, so, but first, uh, back to so Hydra is a window manager app that is open source. You can download the source code from GitHub. It's now since been renamed, and I'm, I'm not even going to try and say the new name because I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's I believe it's the Norse name for the the hammer of Thor. <laughs> uh, but if you Google, I always find it just by Googling Hydra Window Manager. So the, this name story is pretty interesting. He had a couple of other apps that did the same thing before this, and they all followed, I, I think those were all uh, Greek names, which so Hydra is the Greek naming theme. He's kind of remade the project several times, and then... Uh, this one, I think, has picked up more steam than any of the others. It has uh, over 4,000 stars on GitHub now. So we went over, I'm not going to go into what the app is because we covered that uh, before, but it's a window manager. It lets you uh, assign shortcuts to move windows around on your on your screen. And then if you follow the GitHub issues, you know, this is really interesting because just seeing how the community is, uh, like, its involvement in the direction of the app. And I think with Hydra, they did an icon um, that I believe was sort of a crowdsourced. They got that icon. And then I literally the app only had that icon for about a month. So this is an icon that matches the Hydra theme. Then I followed a thread on there and uh, it looked like the name was gonna be a pen knife. And they were creating an icon around pen knife. And then uh, this new name, this Norse uh, uh, Hammer of Thor name came out of nowhere and it sounds like the maintainer is just like, well, this is the name I like and that's the way it's going to be. Um, so that's sort of interesting in that angle of just watching these conversations uh, in the GitHub issues. It's just sort of interesting seeing sort of the identity for an app uh, evolve as well as uh, you know, when you think of open source contributions, they're usually bug fixes and adding features that people want and everything. So it's all—it's also interesting seeing how the community gets involved in determining the um, sort of branding of the app. And what I wanted to cover here, so it's a topic that I think is really interesting, is that the app was open source, but it had a nag screen asking for donations. And I, I thought that was interesting, an interesting model. And uh, this is interesting to me because I, I like the idea of releasing an app like that because 
As a user of apps, you know, I, I look for two things. Like I want either I want I want the app to have an assured future. So like if I invest in learning how to use an application and relying on it for my workflow, I want to make sure it's going to be there in uh, like five years or whatever. I look for and there are two things that uh, two sort of approaches that I'd like the app to have. Well, the most desirable one is to have it be very successful. You know, if, if someone's making their living from this app and supporting their family from this app, it's they're going to do everything in their power to make sure it sticks around. Um, but for like a window manager on OS 10, which doesn't particularly facilitate window managers, that may not be a possibility. If you're not going to get that, then you can also uh, have the app be open source. And then that means that it's not all in either one person's hands or in one company's hands to maintain the application. So you get um, some potential assurance that there's a future if the community ends up picking it up. So I like the idea that an app can kind of go for both of those at the same time and possibly be paid as well as being open source. And that's sort of... Uh, for me as a user, what I want the most is for the app to continue to be maintained and continue to be developed. So not putting all your eggs in one of those baskets seems uh, desirable to me. But then, of course, like, how does that work when anyone can download the application and find the nag screen and remove it themselves and have the full featured version of the software? Uh, and even release the full fe featured version of the software and depending on the license, uh, perhaps even sell the full featured software. I, I find it hard to believe this model could work, especially for some kind of app or an app that's like Hydra. And if I can ask the question, the open source thing on GitHub contains this nag screen, correct? Yep. Okay. So there's no like... You download this uh, pre-packaged version that just runs and it has a nag screen for people who just who don't even want to download source code and don't want to have to deal with compiling or whatever, and they get a nag screen. But if you want to deal with compiling and you want to deal with source code, you don't get a nag screen. It's not like that. So I could see that model working. Like the, the standard everyday user just comes in, hey, uh, I like this window manager, even though not a lot of people want a window manager, but hey, I like this window manager, but I have no idea about code. I'm just going to download this window manager. Hey, there's an ag screen. It doesn't go away. Maybe I'll donate, you know, whatever. But then their friend who's, you know, a computer science major says, I can deal with code, and they download it, and they don't get the nag screen. That is a model I can see working versus if it's just all open source and open source with an ag screen, that doesn't seem sustainable to me especially since it's targeting people who already probably know their way around a little bit of code and at least enough to know, hey, I can comment this line out and I won't get that annoying nag screen anymore. I was immediately confused when I saw it happened. Um, I'm not really used to the concept of open, soft, open source software that you also pay for. So I thought that was kind of weird. And not that I'm against it, I'm just, I'm just not used to it. I'm not sure how how I feel about that or how successful it could potentially be. Um, yeah, so I think it's a useful product, but I don't know where it's going. There's one other point to this, and I thought this was where we were going, and maybe, Robin, you had the idea to go this way next, but I know you have some opinions on it, and this is uh, the developer's descent into either genius or crazy? Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how much I want to, I, I, I was hinting at that a little bit with the, uh, the naming uh, stuff. It, it's, it just seems, um, you know, he, he posted on his, uh, his blog that he was going to halt development uh, for nine days. And then, um, and that's since happened. And, and sure enough, like development has picked up on it. It, it just strange to me because like with an open source project, especially one that, you know, you, you, uh, nobody sees this and expect this is how this guy is making his, his living. Like my expectation as a user of the software is that there are going to be lulls in development unless it gets a lot bigger than it is. So, uh, but then I thought it was really interesting that, you know, it seemed like there was this thread developing in the GitHub issues and gravitating towards this pen knife name. And then one day, uh, the entire repository had been renamed uh, to this Norse mythology name that seemed to come out of nowhere. It, it's uh, 
no one knows how to pronounce it, and uh, you know it, it's a, it's got negative Google juice. It's just a, interesting to to watch how this is all unfolding, and uh, I think funny as well. But um, you know, I, I wish him the best on on having it be successful. I think it's an absolutely fantastic piece of software. Um, so I I'm just liking watching how this plays out. Uh, and I just want to insert one thing, and that's that the nag screen. He's commented that uh, it was too confusing, like the model is too confusing, which is exactly, uh, I think both of you guys hinted at that, like, it's like, well, how does this really work? And uh, so I, I believe now it's going to be a fully open source application, but any, I don't want to say what's going to end up happening because anything could. He's at least expressed that uh, people found this confusing and didn't look like that model was going to work. Sure. And... Hydra, that's like uh that's like mythical, isn't is it not? That's like a like a serpent or something. I'm not good on mythology. I, I think of a Hydra as a it's a it's a many headed uh uh I think sort of a sea creature. I, I and I believe that all the early names were Greek names. So I think a Hydra is yeah, isn't the Hydra it's Yeah, it's something somebody fights in one of those old books yeah oedipus oedipus encounters the hydra on his way home in the odyssey so i was just making a note this guy likes mythical creatures i just think of uh captain america marvel anybody have any more on hydra no all right so anyway so the next topic uh is something that's very relevant right now a lot of people are talking about it or at least had been talking about it we're slow at the, the on the blue team um but it's the app store ecosystem and can you make money? Do you make money? Do people make money? What's Apple doing? Can they do something better? You know, what's our experiences? My opinion on the ecosystem is kind of unknown since I have no apps in the ecosystem. Um, the, the complaints that everyone have kind of range a bunch of different ways. Um, not as much blaming the app store as much as just blaming, you know, a lot of people take blame for themselves, blaming the inability to make money. Some people chalking it up to poor marketing. Some people saying, well, that must have not been good enough if it didn't make a lot of money. Um, there's all different types, it's all different reasons. Uh, I mean, the, the core argument for everyone is whether or not they can make a living making software. And, you know, specifically for the App Store. And a lot of people have been posting their numbers saying, I spent X amount of time writing something, and in the end I made them $2,000. And, you know, that's $2,000 is a sizable amount of, like, pocket change, but it's not enough to live on in any really developed area. I have only one app that's under my name and that I uh, have uh, download numbers for. Uh, and they're abysmal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough with your honesty. Do you, do you want to share what the app is? And... You can go to onepercenter.com one and the app is called Review. It's been called an index card app. It's in the broad category of, I think of software as information managers, uh, which I put like to-do lists in this category and uh, something like Evernote, those are uh, everything buckets. Even an app like Vesper, like a, a notes app that anything to, that you can like organize information. And you can see like one of those apps, like some one person might call it a notes app and uh, Evernote, I don't know how common the term everything bucket is but some people call those everything buckets and to-do list app but to me they're just all these ways like you can take information put them in an application and then that app can uh, show you that information uh, in ways that are useful to you as a user um, so what my app did is you would put information in there and you encounter a card and then you say when you want to see that card again and it had uh, today next week and next month um, so it's a little bit like a flashcard app, but I didn't want to go in the flashcard direction because that had connotations of it being something like you're learning a particular subject, where for me it was like just just little things. Like if I learned uh, uh, something uh, about Swift, like a sentence that says, uh, we've been talking about generics a little bit in the office, and before Swift I didn't know what a generic was, I might make a note about uh what a generic is and just put it on a card in there and then say, all right, I'll, I'll look at this again tomorrow and read that. And then once I feel like I know it, uh, put it a, a week off. But I didn't want to be like, all right, here's a set of cards that are all about, you know, learning a language or learning mathematics or the other things that you would make 
with flashcards. And uh, so my app, I, I released it only for iPad, which was uh, really silly because the app makes far more sense as an iPhone app, but I had just gotten an iPad and I just felt like, and I was just like, all right, I'm gonna buy an iPad and make an app for it. Um, not very business suave approach. And I actually did much of the way I finished uh, maybe 90% of the way of an iPhone app. You know, life happened. I, I wasn't making much money on it. Uh, so when I, rele I released the iPad version first and I promoted a little bit through um, sponsorships on websites, um, I got, you know, pretty much my advertising paid for itself. You know, it's, it, it's textbook exactly like these stories you, you read online. Um, not the ones like on, unread, which got, uh, you know, unread got real press. And that's actually the really more concerning stories are the ones that, uh, that got promoted on all the big blogs and still didn't end up being successful. Mine, I was kind of like, okay, uh, I did this, I did the advertising, but really, you know, like consider the number of people who have iPhones versus iPads. What really I should do is go develop an iPhone version and then release the iPhone version and then pay for the advertising. And then each dollar I spend on advertising is way more valuable um, because I can reach a much higher, much more users uh, if I have it on iPhone and iPad. But then I never finished. <laughs> the iPhone version. So that never happened. And that's how, that's how, uh, the app petered out. Um, and so I've chosen not to, uh, continue developing it. I might, you know, I still think the idea is still an app I want, but, uh, you know, my opinion of the app store ecosystem is it's absolutely abysmal and we're in the worst state that, uh, um, we've ever that i've ever been in since i've been a mac user which started you know pretty much around when os 10 started through the entire lifetime of uh using os 10 it just seemed like there were always new apps that represented new ideas that you could like uh um, try out and then some of these would become hits and a company or uh, people would uh a company or one person would end up making their living around this. Uh, so some examples are um, LaunchBar, which uh, does a lot of the stuff that Spotlight does and predated it by a large margin. Uh, NetNewsWire, which was uh, one of the first um, RSS readers on OS X. Uh, VoodooPad uh, by uh, Flying Meat is a, a wiki that runs as like a desktop application. Um, so those were uh, like, uh, you know, I think a Sabitha edit goes in this category, like a, an app that for multiple people editing uh, the same text file. Uh, and those are all apps that are like sort of still around. But during that period, there were lots more um, apps that, you know, now I would say a lot of them are gone. That period felt like an exciting time to try out new applications, and that went until the iPhone. And then the early days, the iPhone, that felt like a, a really exciting time when people were doing new, interesting ideas. And now it's just sort of like, it feels like it's just petered out. And it's partially, you know, even for me as a user, like I, I feel like the market is so risky that I don't even want to try stuff because just like I was saying, what I want is the application to be sustainable and can I can still use it for in five years. And I, I just feel like, you know, with these apps, if if the norm is someone spends five or six months making an app, you know, they make $2,000 or even if they spend five or six months and they make $20,000, that's not good enough. If you make, tw if you do all the things, if you get what qualifies as a hit in our industry, which is uh, circulating on all the big Mac uh, blogs and everything, and you only make $30,000 for six months work, that is not, that is a dead coffin ecosystem, like absolutely dead into the ground. Like that needs to be like a $300,000 uh, app for you know, for like something that is should be a hit. Yeah, but where, where do you think the fault is, Robin? That's the, the problem. Is what what's changed in five years? We've hit the the Hollywood stage, and uh, the big names come in and can make blockbusters, and they put out a sequel, and then they put out a sequel, and there's no more original ideas. And the small indie guys come in; they can't put out a blockbuster. They don't have that kind of budget to advertise or to grease Apple's pockets with, uh, you know promotion in the app store or they're not big enough for app store promotion 
And uh, the indie ones, there you can find a few here and there, but you know they they won't be sustained for for very long. This is no saying that people were promoted in the app store and it didn't make a difference. That's people were promoted twice in the app store, and you, while the promotion gave them a spike of business, it wasn't enough to carry them. That's one app we're talking about right uh, here. I mean, it's, a series of them. If you look that. back at, so what do you think Vesper's numbers are? Vesper is making a shitload of money. I am not. I'm not sure about that. For like three weeks straight, it was like number twenty out of all of the apps in the App Store. But th that's again, that's a name. That's not um, being featured by Apple. I, I don't want to say it's because it's, it's John Gruber's app, but I'm saying. Yeah, but John Gruber, I'm assuming, posted unread, and all of his readers saw that. So you'd think at least you know a percentage of those users would have bought it and bumped it up over thirty thousand dollars of what it made. I'll make a comment here that I actually do think that there is. You know, there's there's kind of this Vesper and Overcast, Marco's podcast app, are, are both of the same category, which is like taking like an existing category with sort of a proven market and just doing a really, 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 really polished app in that category. Like an, an app that you want to say, this is best of class for this, uh, for this app category. I think there's still room there. And I think that that's great. And I think like, you know, the problem with that is that makes this, uh, you know, that, that increases your risk as a developer because now it's not only do you have to present an app, but it has to be really, really polished. And Unread ended up not being uh, uh, successful, you know, that, and that's sort of the counter example. Of, I think Unread tried exactly that model, which is sort of the right model, which is do a really, really high, polished app and try to be the best in your category and still didn't succeed but I think you still can succeed um, trying to do that what I'm most interested in as a user are sort of like apps I didn't really think of about you know like like my review app like there's not another app that does uh, I mean you could say overlap with like a flashcard app but fundamentally it's, it's supposed to be like uh, an app that I, I didn't think uh, there's any app out there that solves the problem that this solves. And I'm most interested in those kinds of apps. Um, so I think there's still potentially, you know, you you can make money. And I think Vesper and I, we, I think the jury's out on whether Overcast is even successful. But um, I kind of suspect that doing the like a best of class app for a category, you can still make money doing that, although it would still be risky. And we, you know, it's telling that we listed two apps here by two of the biggest name people in the industry. But uh, the it, so there's a little bit of potential there, but I think that there's practically zero potential in the stuff that I'm truly interested in, which is uh, like just completely new ideas. But does that mean they're bad ideas? Like, well, what does that mean about that? Why wouldn't a, why wouldn't an idea succeed? So if you have an idea that happens to just be a great idea, and the grand population also feels it's a great idea, why wouldn't that idea succeed? I don't have an answer of what's wrong and uh, how to fix it. And even if there is anything wrong, you know, like I, I feel like um, back, you know, in this period I, I was talking about that sort of when a lot of apps launched, you know, it's telling that really, you know, there's not that many apps that I can list now that are still around from that period that felt like it was really experimental and innovative. Um, it felt like, you know, right now it feels like it practically sinks in the in the harbor. You know, it doesn't even get out of the harbor. It the the problem I feel like that I'm I'm concerned about is that the idea isn't even being truly tested because like not only do you have to have a great idea, you have to hit it out of the park with the marketing and you just have to hit it fire on all cylinders and then your idea has a chance, you know? And what you want is something where you can put an idea out there and float it out without that level of investment, get it to have a chance without having to do uh, the level of polish and the level of marketing and all the things that, uh, that you need now to even get noticed in the App Store. Do you think the current trend will impact bigger named companies and bigger apps, or do you think it's just strictly the small apps that are gonna be hurt by this? So do you, do, do you think that you know, any common app that's been known to make a lot of money or have a lot of users 
Do you think their popularity will also decrease? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that, you know, in the big names, like, and who are the big names that we're talking about here? I don't know. I, yeah, I just don't know. Like, how much does, uh, like, I think Adobe has a couple apps in the App Store. If you look at the breakdown of their revenue, what percentage of the money of their uh their software revenue is coming from these app store apps. You know, I, I think it's like a, like a drop in the bucket for them. So like, I, I feel like companies like Microsoft and Google, most of their products, I think they give away for free. I mean, they're doing this because they want visibility on all these platforms and they need to be able to uh, have whatever their primary revenue source, um, their users that are paying for that are going to demand their presence on all these platforms. And, and Google is just trying to uh, uh, stay visible on these platforms since it's really, I mean, obviously Android's been successful, but I, I don't think they're making very much money off of it. Um, but they're hoping to at some point. I think that the companies are going to have a incentive to stay visible on the platform no matter what. What about big, big name companies that are... Uh, mobile first you know i think those like can anyone list a company that they would say qualifies as that that's not a game company i mean games are uh while the type of game that's successful on the, the platform is uh you, you could uh, comment on but excluding like the candy crushes and the sort of uh, uh in-app purchased uh, uh let's just call them exploitation games <laughs> excluding those like is there a mobile first type of app that you guys think has been uh really successful what about something like flipboard i think they're successful but i don't think that they're uh making money you know i think they're successful because they've been a darling of the startup industry and that's uh I, I assume that they're just burning through an investor's money. I mean, maybe they're getting money through uh, some of these content deals. I, I don't, when I use the app, I have no idea how they are making money. And that makes me suspect that they're not. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the definition of successful? Uh, there was an app a few years ago called Pulse. I don't know if you guys remember it or used it, uh, but they were bought for like $90 million. So that's successful. I would agree. When, when's the last time you heard about Pulse? Oh, it, well, it, was, it was bought by LinkedIn, and now LinkedIn has the Pulse, if you ever go on LinkedIn's site. Um, so they've integrated it, but LinkedIn makes money other ways. Anyway, we'll get into LinkedIn's business model, but I think that they more are of the type of uh, stay visible on the platform. You know, they make money in the way social networks make money. So, you know, and that's like, that's been one of the trends is... Uh, uh, make an app that uh, becomes successful, but successful in terms of users, not in terms of revenue, and then get bought by a social media company is certainly a, a path to success. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't exactly call that evidence of a healthy ecosystem either. So to shed a different light on this, we can collectively say, <clears throat> I'm not bragging here or anything, but I've had the most success on the App Store. Um, but that's also because I've been doing it since day one. Anyway, but the apps that have been most successful for me are these, uh, and of course I've Hollywooded it up by partnering with a book publisher, but uh, these like niche, very niche uh, travel applications that are very specific to one thing and one thing only, and that's Walt Disney World um, and Disneyland in California. And there's a built-in obvious, obviously, with from this these people who like these books that are published, but we've made more money than I thought we would make with them it's sustained development over the course of four years now. Not a vast, you know, market share app, but these very, a very. If you can get into a very niche market that you actually enjoy working on and want to do it, do it the best because I, I, I feel we have the best niche market app for this uh, category. Um, you can still make money there. It's not like a three hundred thousand dollar you know, for six month app, like you were talking about, Robin, but it, it, you know, makes money. It's not the app that's making money. It's the use, it's the access to the content that is making money. Is that not, it, it, it's because there is content to marry to the app when, which leads to success. Like if, if you had your app and, and not a publisher, your app would not be successful. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, we would have sourced our data in other ways, which is easily sourceable. Um, 
we partnered with the publisher just so we didn't have to do that legwork. So it took out from the development time. Yeah, but I mean, doing that legwork was probably equal time to the development time. Wouldn't like isn't that a lot of work that the publisher put in? Probably, but you know, we might not have launched with as much data as they did. You know, you do bring up a good point, but I don't think it's necessarily just the app. I think it's I think people want to buy the app more, more than they want to buy the book because we give them more for a lower price sure sure it's, it's, it's not about the app versus the book it's, it's just about the app is a portal into into something else yeah well i mean i would say that for most any app it's like you buy an rss reader and that's a portal into rss feeds that you like if you buy overcast it's a portal into the podcast you like uh you can make that argument for anything not information managers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Robin. <laughs> I mean, you win. It's true. Uh, well, I, I, I didn't know it was a competition. There is a distinction. The yeah. information manager is a portal into information you create. So, same argument. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. And this is one of the points that came up when in these, uh, these blog posts that uh, popped up in the community. Does anyone remember who linked to the post about, uh, I believe it was an app for uh, maybe learning Chinese? I'm not sure, but someone uh, posted some, I don't think they actually posted numbers, but they said that they were successful. And it was exactly that uh, type of approach where they they license technology for character recognition, may have incorporated a licensed dictionary as well. Um, and focused hyper laser focused on one niche, you know, like uh, people, let's just assume it was uh, learning Chinese. I'm not sure if that's right. People who want to learn Chinese. And, you know, I, I think that absolutely you can still make money doing that. I think that kind of what Rob was hinting at, and I don't know exactly how, how to how to phrase it, but there is something like, like I feel like there is something different uh, about niche apps so I, you know, I would sort of put niche apps kind of closer to, you know, it's another approach to the App Store ecos to building an app for the App Store that works. Like I think one of them is like maybe you can do a really highly polished app sometimes and that will be successful, and maybe you can do um, a niche app and that will be successful. And, I, and for me, at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, the kind of app that I want to make and the kind of app that I want to use, which is an app that expresses a new idea that's uh, not necessarily niche. My app as an information manager, you know, one of the things I kind of was looking for is like, no matter what I'm doing in my life, like this will be useful. You know, let's say I was like a, like a, a writer, I might um, capture the phrases that I, I find in like books. If I cap- see a, a, read a really good piece of prose, I might put it in there. Or if I'm a scientist, you know, maybe it's a, uh, a piece of research that inspires some interesting thoughts that I may incorporate into an experiment. Uh, or if I'm a programmer, I may uh, learn a new way of structuring a function like this. So I'm, I, you know, I look for things that sort of uh, would be helpful to someone no matter what their interest is. And and it's like exactly that kind of app that seems to be like a new thing that you could use to uh, to get better at anything or to create any anything. And that seems like exactly, you know, the type. So at the end of the day, you know, for me, it's just the type of app I personally want to make and I personally want to use seems to be the type of app that uh, is having the most trouble. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't these other ones. And I think that that's great to talk about. What are the... Uh, what are the ways that you can make it work? And this is something I've been trying to think about. Like what, you know, I would love if I could, I would love to, if I had an app that was a, uh, a niche idea that I think fit into a niche that I could target really well, that I would be really exciting for me to work on, then that would, that would be a great thing to work on right now. Cause that would be, uh, so I would love to have that, but I haven't thought of anything. Well, regardless, uh, that was a great elevator pitch for your information app. All in best. Yeah, I've thought about picking it up again, but yeah, we'll, you know, we'll see. You know, it's one of these great things where, like, one of the things I've spent so much time doing, like, I did, like, a really skeuomorphic design. Like, you can pick, it, it can look like an index card or, or look like a piece of paper or look like a book, like a textured paper and drop shadows and everything. And then I, I spent days on doing, like, a backdrop. What I was going for is when you sit at a... Um, 
you know, like a, there's like lawyer sets or something. And it's like a leather thing you put on your desk. Yep, I know what you're talking about. I don't know what they're called, but I was kind of going for something that felt like that. And now, you know, that was all this like design work that, would, that took a really long time. And now, now I'd be like, you know, if I did it now, I would uh, not have to do any of that work and I could rip it all out. And that would be, uh, you know, a part of me is annoyed that I did all that go work and then they completely change the direction. But another part of me is like, well, that was the hardest part of the app, you know, so it'd be a lot easier now. Yeah, and you could write it in Swift. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know. You know, it's just certainly it, it comes up every once in a while that maybe I'll uh, I'll give it another shot and and try it with a different approach. You know, I, I think uh, instead of doing really well on one platform, like getting it in all platforms and being okay, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. You know, that I'm, and now I'm realizing that contradicts what I have sort of said here. That I think uh, the level of quality that the community expects for an app is very very high right now because there's so much competition all right this next topic something that brings joy to my heart every day when i yearn to hear the fists pound on the desk and robin that's you when you get mad about things that are stupid oh god are, are, we, are we doing this one yeah yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> and one of those is markdown yeah, and and in in specific, Markdown doesn't support. Uh, I mean, excuse me, Slack doesn't support Markdown, which is fine. You know, I I think that you know I I would like it to support Markdown, but then I I read, but uh, you know, I could there there are many reasons uh, not to support it, and I, and one of them might be just that you haven't had the time yet and another one might be that you don't think it's a good for your platform or whatever but then but when i read what the slack faq uh says about markdown i i just uh, why they don't support markdown i couldn't believe it um so all right i'm just gonna read this and then we'll talk about it it's uh, okay so it says why didn't you use markdown syntax there are lots of normal humans who use slack <laughs> For already off on a bad foot, but and many of them already do things like add asterisks around words they want to emphasize. It is also used in many other popular programs such as Google Talk. It's not easy to please everyone here, and since it is formatting that is interpreted at display time and not markup in the text, we had to choose one way or the other. Okay, so I'm going to go through and state the things uh, wrong with this. So first of all, normal humans like uh, like what? Uh, like, this is this is like uh, it makes us sound like okay geeks. My my imagining the person writing this fact is thinking is they are just getting sick of tired of people email of these crazy geeks with their crazy uh, markup language emailing them to support it and. Uh, while they're one of the the normal humans um, who know uh, who don't understand what this markdown thing is, that's what that sentence makes me uh, makes me think they're thinking. But then it gets even weirder because, and many of them already do things like add asterisks around words they want to emphasize to uh, point out. If you don't know what markdown is, it's a language that converts plain text to markup and to italicize a word in Markdown, you put asterisks around it. The only reason it's italicized is because HTML interprets an emphasis tag as italics. So this sentence is makes apps complete gibberish because adding asterisks around words is specifically how you emphasize that word in Markdown. So this is saying, if you read this sentence uh, literally, what it's saying is there are lots of humans who use Slack and use the syntax that already Markdown supports in order to emphasize words. So that would be a reason to use um, Markdown, not a reason not to use it. And then this last sentence, uh, it's not easy to please everyone here since it's formatting this interpretive display time. I'm not even gonna get into that, but I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about there. Um, so I did a little Googling and I, I was just curious, uh, because I'm like, well, you know, when I read this FAQ question, I'm like, this sounds like you're saying like we should uh, like uh, that, uh, Markdown would be good to support. 
And I, I don't, I couldn't even understand that as a reason not to use it. Um, so I found uh, this quote on uh, this thread on Twitter, and this in in here. Uh, I, I'm not going to dig through it, but we'll we'll add the link to the show notes. But uh, it comes down to what the user thinks that uh, what Slack thinks that they want, and in specifically, it seems like in Google Talk, asterisks around a word make it bold instead of italics, and uh, and it, it comments in here. It says like, because Markdown is just wrong, you plainly meant that that why, like the previous person put a why in asterisk, um, and, and it was saying sort of like me, it's like, I do this, and that means I want to emphasize it. And then it says, uh, what you, you plainly meant that why to be bold, <laughs> as did users of Usernet, IRC, BBS, etc. Um, so like bold is another form of emphasis. <laughs> when I emphasize a word in prose, like when, when do you ever read, like if you're reading like an article in the New Yorker or something, or let's, let's say even like People Magazine, I don't even know what, what this is based on. Like the word that is emphasized in uh, when you're uh, quoting someone, that, that word is put in italics, not bold. Um, so this all comes down to, at the end of the day, because somebody used Google Talk at Slack, and Google Talk <laughs> puts uh, asterisks in bold, is, is my interpretation of how they're making this decision. I think we can move on. So I have two, two comments on Robin and his uh, hatred for people who don't support uh, Markdown. And that Robin is uh, very uh, persnickety, um, and that leads to hot-headedness. For one, he walks around with his hands and fists all day. He does. If, if you watch him walk around. I didn't notice that. Matt pointed out of that. It's great. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Did you notice? That's my inner rage. No, I didn't notice. <laughs> you don't do it all the time. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I you do it pretty frequently. <laughs> yeah. But he also has a love of hot sauce. And I thought a great way to end the, end the show today. We'll be talking about your hot sauce collection, Robin. The show is Robin-centric. The, the, the show is pretty much find something that either pisses Robin off or that he's super passionate about and just let him rant. Like most things in life, Robin is incredibly passionate one way or the other. I'll make a quick aside before hot sauce. Just on the same markdown, like you, you, you really can't write documentation if it's not in markdown. Because it's not the right way to write documentation. Yeah, definitely. That, that's, that's a Robinism for everyone. Yeah, I know, I know. I think you were saying that as, like, uh, if you sit next to Robin, you can't write documentation uh, if it's not in Markdown. If you're, if you're going to make a flow graph, a flow chart, it must be OmniGraffle. OmniGraffle or go home. To graph without OmniGraffle is to not graph at all. I'm, I'm glad that uh, you guys have come to the same conclusions I have, because you're, you're just expressing the conclusion. This is exactly what, what I think, so I have no comment. So we can talk about some hot sauce. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard about this hot sauce collection, and I don't have the full story. And just uh, another aside, whenever we're in the, the market near our house, my wife is all, we, they have a hot sauce selection. And my wife is always like, ooh, look at these crazy hot sauces. We should buy one for Robin. As long as they're not blow your ass out hot sauces, because those aren't the good hot sauces. To which I say to her, these are too mainstream. Robin wouldn't like them, and then we don't buy them for you. Um, but anyway, so... I want to hear about your hot sauce collection, if there's anything interesting to hear about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think you touched upon uh, the, the most. I, I mean, I have a, yeah, I go around uh, and I I try hot sauces, uh, and um, I, I actually I, I think we got on this topic because I was commenting that I have a uh, one of the URLs I own is handpicked hot sauces. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Yeah, and that was. Um, that was my response to the hot sauce market because like the the problem if you like hot sauces sort of the problem is there are these hot sauce stores or like the hot sauce section in the store and there'll be seemingly tons of hot sauces and they all have these names yeah like uh, whoop ass hot sauce and blow your ass out hot sauce and they're funny and they have uh, funny labels and all that and i have no problem with that except that i've tried a bunch of these hot sauces and uh you know first of all there's like the competition on heat type hot sauce you know like how hot can you make it 
You know, it's, and I'm like, oh, it's not how you make a good hot sauce. You know, what you want is something that's flavorful and that the, uh, um, the flavors themselves sort of match the level of, of heat and then they complement each other. So like, I'm, I'm not interested in hot sauces that are like just trying to be the hottest. Uh, and what I really want is like ones that are complicated and have interesting uh, flavors. And those are the ones that are really hard to find and they tend not to be... Uh, the ones that are the blow your ass out hot sauce. Those hot sauces all they all taste the same. They're all like a sort of cayenne flavored and cayenne and vinegar flavored. And you really want the ones with more complicated seasoning and all that. So I'll talk about one hot sauce that's a, a favorite of mine. And this is the it's called Brother Brew Brews hot sauce. If you're into hot sauce, this is like a this is a great one, a great one to get. It's 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 really fantastic. It doesn't probably you've never tasted a hot sauce that tastes like it. It's it's on the spicier side, so it's a it's actually quite hot, but really complicated flavor and uh in the ingredients, it says, quote unquote, African spices, you know, oftentimes uh, uh, what, what the uh, sort of magic sauce in a hot sauce is, is going to be hidden in like one line in the ingredients that could encompass practically anything. The Brother Brewery sauce has African hot sauce, but really the funny claim to fame about the Brothers Brew Brew hot sauce is that Brother Brew Brew is Mr. Tambourine Man, as in the Bob Dylan song. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. That's my singing. That's the one is about Brother Brew Brew. And so obviously he was a younger man when he was Mr. Tambourine Man. That's what Mr. Tam the person that Bob Dylan <laughs> wrote Mr. Tambourine Man about is, makes one of my favorite hot sauces now. And uh, the reason, the way I found this out is I was just Googling Mr. Uh, uh, Brother Brew Brews and there was a, a, and one of the hits is on like Google Books and an autobiography about, uh, or not an autobiography, a biography of Bob Dylan. And it talks about, it's like, yeah, Brother Brew Brew now uh, makes hot sauce and he was Mr. Tambourine. Man. So how do you, how do you get a career arching from I play the tambourine to now I make a hot sauce? What, what life decisions led to that? We weren't around in the 60s. <laughs> I assume that has a lot to do with it. <laughs> I mean, that's what I want to grow up to be, someone who can play the tambourine and then go, grow up and then make hot sauce. That's what you call prolific. What do you put this hot sauce on? Uh, Brew Brews is good on uh, pizza, on spaghetti. Those are, you know, and when I think of Brew Brews, those are the two things that I, I think it goes particularly well with. Do you put hot sauce on eggs? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. Uh, you, you know what's really good with eggs is sriracha. I like sriracha with that. That's the, uh, uh, it's sometimes called like the rooster sauce. Uh, that, I like that one with eggs a lot. I just got one from Maine. Uh, my family has uh, a farm in Maine and it's near Hope. Hope is like a tiny little town and there's a hot sauce there and it's made in Hope. <laughs> it was uh, $11, it's excellent. It may even, I, I haven't, I haven't, I have to try it over the course of a few days, but handpickedhotsauces.com in my head, it may, it may make that. There's a, the handpicked hot sauces right now would only have like six hot sauces. <laughs> but those six hot sauces, boy, are they handpicked. No, they're handpicked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the number I had to try to find those six. <laughs> how many, just, just one last question. How many bottles do you think you have in your collection? I, uh, less than you would think because, uh, and most of them are in storage now from when I moved to New York, uh, but because I eat them and I tend not to open more until I finish them, but I probably have maybe 30 to 40. That's just as much as I thought you would have. Yeah. That's actually more than I expected you to have. So I am surprised. Yeah. Well, anybody got anything else? Do we want to keep going? We have more topics. So April Zero is uh, something that uh, I was introduced to quite literally today because I'm lazy and I didn't check out the link that Robin sent uh, many weeks ago. I've been trying to get them to look at it for weeks. Exactly. And uh, April Zero is fascinating, uh, is the word I'll use to describe it. This guy, who I don't even know his name, has been recording his stats, quote unquote, um, for the past, I believe, six months roughly maybe five months i think he started in march of 2014 uh so he st he tracks stats like uh athletics so he his runs 
his uh, heart rate, you know, his iron levels in his blood. I don't know how often he checks those, but he has those stats, and they're all seemingly up to date. Um, like his heart rate was like 10 minutes ago the last time I checked. Uh, beyond that, he tracks his locations, so you can always see where he is. So if he's at home, if he's at work, if he's out grocery shopping, I suppose. Uh, and you can see his past locations and how many miles he's traveled in the past five months and how many countries and cities he's been in. And then also his journal. So it's, uh, it's like an all-encompassing site of this man's life, and it's quote-unquote open source to us. And we can get all the gory details. Um, did, did I sum that up pretty well, Robin? Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Oh, okay, so so that's what April Zero is. And there are many facets to this site that we could talk about. Um, one of them that I'd like to hit on first, and that me and, excuse me, Robin and I talked about earlier. Oh, boy. <laughs> was making this a product. Uh, I would pay money for this product i would want to track i do want to track everything in my life i want to know all the gory details i'm not sure i want to post it publicly but i want to know everything about my life and i want to keep track of it and keep score uh for myself uh, to make myself better and to you know just relive my past i have a terrible memory to relive my past would be great with this quote unquote product um so i think that's number one what this thing needs to be and I think the next big thing to talk about on this is the actual site. It's, it's what Robin mentioned this earlier as well. It's it's an amazing site, and uh, this guy like seemingly made it himself. And it's I've never seen anything like it. It's it's very fascinating. Um, but anyway, that's that's all I have to pontificate on. I think the site is very pretty. I mean, I think that's the number one thing to point out is. He has some really nice animations. Pretty much any, everything on the screen, and every transition, small elements all over the screen are constantly moving and animating. And he does a really nice job with that. And they all flow together. And his theme is just, is just incredibly nice. I think it's a fun idea. Um, it takes like the concept of a fitness tracker or a Fitbit and takes it like the step further. So it goes from having something like just knowing the amount of steps I've taken a day. You know, or to, or even something like a run keeper to to know you know I've run you know twenty miles in the past three weeks, to actually knowing you know where I've been. It, it it basically sums up a whole bunch of apps at once, and I think that's really cool. I mean, the the concept of open sourcing it, meh. Like like like, you know, I, I think it's cool. I think it's cool. You know, first portfolio specifically. I don't even I don't even want to be open source it. I I want to pay him to do this. Yeah, but, to make this product for me. Yeah, making it a public thing that the world can see, you know, th- that's cool just strictly so we can see what he's technically capable of, which is, which is a lot. It's nice. Yeah. Um, but this is this data I'd love to know about myself. I, I think the more data you can collect, the better. Exactly. And, and the prettier you can display it, the better. I think he did a great job of both. I think we just formed a startup. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other question I have, and I, I failed to mention this in my long-winded summary of this, is how did he get all this data and where did he get all this data and... What apps did he actually use, and did he automate any of it, and or did he manually input some of this stuff? Like those are big key questions. If anybody wants to, there's a lot you can do. And apps like Runkeeper, um, there's, there's like a central database of all the stuff online. I can't for runners. I can't remember what it is, but you can basically import from all your different running apps. And Runkeeper has an API. And like my Fitness Pal is kind of like the same thing for food and stuff. Sure, sure, yeah. So, so you can do something with like even Splunk if you wanted to, where you basically dump these logs in, in a central service and you mine that service. And that's something that's always really intrigued me. I try to stay somewhat active considering I sit at a desk for 10 plus hours a day. So I at least try to spend an hour a day moving around. And as part of that, I really like to access what was working and what is not. And I think it's really, really fun to take a nerd spin on this and to say, hey, you know, last night I had a hamburger and from the previous data I had at the gym, I was 10% less effective today than I was in the past eight weeks or something. And you can gauge those kind of things. And I think that's really cool data. And, and I think technology today really allows us to make use of that data. So if this were a product, what do you guys think it would look like? Well, I mean, what, what, what's the best you could do for this product today? Define best you can do. Well, like, you know, ideally your phone, I, I, let, let me put, phrase it this way. Um, Ideally, your phone would, you could install this app, and if you wanted to, it would uh, publish your location when you're, and know specifically what restaurant you're sitting down and eating at, 
you know, you could wear your phone on you and uh, while you're at the gym, it would know how many reps and how much weight you did. It would record your heart rate. It would know when you sleep. It would know when you're commuting and all that, but really the phone can't collect all that data. So given that you can't make the perfect app that just knows all the data you would want to create, what's the app you could actually make today? I don't know. I guess if I knew, I'd probably make it. But something that brings all the data into one place and makes decisions based off of that. And making decisions is a scary area. But I, I think it's really fun to be able to make correlations between you know, multiple events in your life to say what is working and what is not. Well, I, I agree. Can we talk about the, because uh, I think you jumped over the collecting the data, which is, I, I think that that's the main problem. I mean, if you had a way to collect the data, then you could experiment uh, with a ton of different ways in finding connections and finding ways of presenting it. Um, but it's like, you know, how do you create an application that makes sense, both like collecting something like uh, the number of calories you ate for breakfast and collecting something like uh, the number of reps you did at the gym and collecting things like uh, how much your time you're spending at your commute and all this stuff like is it even possible to make like uh, uh, the user interface for a an app that makes sense for collecting all those forms of data so maybe you we you have a company that has a suite of apps and if you use all of them you get a an amazing picture of your life and if you use one or you know less than all of them you get a somewhat amazing picture of your life and you use one of them you get whatever aspect that is of your life like you use their running app you get just running details but if you use their running and their travel and their you know whatever dining out one app you know you get all of the data i dined out here and i traveled here and you know i ran here and i ate this for breakfast you know, I don't know how feasible that is, but, you know, if you have a suite of apps that do all of this, then you can conglomerate it, and anybody who wants all of the data can get all of them. What I'm saying here is someone makes a startup like this and Apple buys them, or Apple just goes ahead and jumps the gun, and on top of HomeKit, also, or uh, HealthKit makes, well, they also have HomeKit, but they also make TravelKit and EatingKit and every other kit, and then people just make apps for it, and then iOS will conglomerate all of that data, and iOS just poops it out, and you get a nice little display. Go for it, Apple. Yeah, I think Robin touched on it earlier. The hardest part of this whole process is making something that can automatically collect this data, and I think we're a ways away from that. I read a while ago about something that was Fitbit-like. I cannot remember what it is for the life of me. But it was basically something that could detect the type of exercise you were doing. So it had something you know on your ankle and something on your wrist, and it could say, you're doing jumping jacks, or you're jumping rope, or you're doing push-ups based on you know the analysis of what they did they were able to pick those things out obviously i don't think it's made it big yet because i'm sure i can remember the name if it did but i think that's the first step if if you can get this data in an automatic way then i think it's really really opening a lot of doors if you had to enter it manually do you guys think you would no yeah it's a big no i'm too lazy i think i'd like to but then i'd be like ah. Oh. That's a deterrent to actually do the original task. Like, if I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to do push-ups, I need to record I did 20 push-ups, which is okay. And then I'm going to go to the gym and I have to record I bench-pressed 163 pounds, you know, 12 times. That, that, that gets a little more annoying, and then that really interrupts the workout. It took Rob and I three weeks to look at the link, so what do you think we're going to do about inputting data manually? That's, that's a good point. <laughs> we're lazy. Yeah, and I think a large percentage of the data on uh, that from April zero is you know he's automated as much as you he, as he could, but at, at the end of the day, uh, if there's not an app and you know there's, I don't think an, an app can measure your pulse, for example. Although I, I do remember reading on there that that like I think he's using an app for that. Anyway, you should read the blog. I'm probably not. Uh, representing it right but uh, i know uh that there, there's it's very much uh, a large percent of it's a manual process and that's sort of one of the interesting things here you know another angle that makes april zero interesting is like maintaining that site i mean how many hours a day does that take and it's not like uh he's taking that long just to input the data but the cost of doing a small amount of input spread throughout the day is a lot more expensive, at least for me, than it is to do that same amount of time as one uh, solid block. So I'm also like, well, 
what's the financial situation here? Is he just taking time off to make and then, I mean, I, certainly making it is a full-time job, um, maintaining it. I don't know. I wouldn't say it's a full-time job, but it's like, you know, you can pretty much do just that and have a day job. You know, I think there's something interesting here about this also is sort of striking me as related to the fact that being a developer, being in the technology industry right now, um, you can be really well off really early in your career and be able to do something like this where maybe he's not going to work a day job for a year and just record this data. Um, you know, had the market been what it is now when I was that age, you know, that may have been an option for me and that may have been how I, I would have chosen to uh, spend some of my time. And we want him to make a product and he can become a millionaire. Yeah, but you guys said you wouldn't be willing to manually enter the data. <laughs> well, that's why I said make a product so I don't have to manually enter the data. Like a physical product. If he wants to come take my pulse and then put it in the computer, he can do that. <laughs> yeah. I'll pay him. But I'm not going to do it. Just make it automatic. All right. Good? Okay. Well, I guess we're officially ending.